Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And there's definitely a journey theme to this week's show. Our featured guest is Catherine McInnes talking about her book Snow Widows, Scott's Fatal Antarctic Expedition by the Women Left Behind. We'll travel to the distant moon of Aneros with Alice Thompson in her latest novel Chimera. And Sean Ashton talks about how his daily commute inspired his novel, The Way to Work. But Catherine, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, lovely to have you. Uh, so journeying, normally a biographer would go to the place maybe that they're writing about. They would footstep the subject matter. Lots of what you've written about is based in the Antarctic very difficult for you to footstep there. So how did you how did you go about finding out what what that was like, finding out how that felt? Yes, well, I would say that absolutely Cherry Garrard's book, The Worst Journey in the World, is probably the best if you want to just be put in Antarctica. Just looking at this quote from Sarah Wheeler, who has written quite a lot about Antarctica, and she's been there several times, and she said, Antarctica is something for humankind to aspire to. So it's also a kind of blank canvas that we can all go to in our minds. I've tried to write the male story of the men who were in Antarctica, weaving it in with the women's story. So hopefully you'd have both journeys, the sort of mental journey for the women and the actual physical journey for the men. And this book itself was inspired by a journey, wasn't it? It was inspired by your your husband's quest to climb Everest. Yes, yes. Well done for finding that because I tried to hide that right in the, right <laughs> in the back. Didn't get past me. I'm getting more honest about this because I started off a few interviews ago not saying it. But when he left to climb Everest, we had three small children. In fact, I was pregnant with the third. That's how small they were. So I was really struggling with his decision to take this massive risk. To start with, I interviewed the wives of living explorers. Then that got too painful, really. They were too, being too brave. And I just thought I, they didn't need to answer my questions and I didn't want to have to ask them. So I thought, who can I ask that is beyond having to be brave, you know, beyond me putting them in an awkward position? And I thought, fantastic. These women are absolutely dead, really dead. <laughs> <laughs> but they are the experts. They really are the experts because there are five women. Because when Scott reached the pole in 1912, he was with four other men. So there were five of them. And amazingly, they cover the whole of the sort of British social system at that time. So they go from Captain Oates's mother, who was Lady of the Manor, to Taff Evans's wife, who was working class, and that was a term that was used then, a working class wife of a petty officer. So the only one who wasn't an officer or the officer class of those five. So it gives you an amazing overview of how different women react. And speaking about places that are relevant, uh, so we'll find out all about those women in just a moment. But Cambridge is very relevant, uh, not just because we have the Scott Polar Research Institute here, which I know you must probably know inside out by now, but some of the 
people had con- that you're writing about had connections with Cambridge too. Yes. So Edward Wilson was at Keys College doing his medical degree and he was Scott's right-hand man. And Cambridge was the place where all the research went afterwards and the survivors to be able to process the research. It was very difficult because it was the First World War. All the rocks they brought back, all the blue-green samples, you know, all the kind of amazing research that they'd done it was scientific expedition so they came back with tons of research uh, was processed at Cambridge. Well we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you Catherine? It is very important to me. This book is based on Elgar's violin concerto in B minor actually. We're not going to hear that but I just wanted you to know that because there are effectively 10 characters in this group biography, the way that I tried to write it is it's sort of an orchestra. So many instruments, but one sound. And this one we'll start with is Do You Not Hear My Lady, sung by Alad Jones. Why this one? I think it's quite interesting that these women were so invisible that still now all five of them have been miscaptioned, misquoted. You know, nobody really knows who they are. And people know so much about the men. So this is just about listen to the ladies, you know. It's also about chivalry because everybody thinks that all women at the beginning of the 20th century were involved in suffrage. And these women weren't. It was about chivalry. And the men were going off flying their ladies' colours, basically. Also, I find this music very measured, and I, when I'm sort of a bit stressed, anything that's slower than my heartbeat, I find very comforting. <laughs> so I hope that you like it too. That was Did You Not Hear My Lady by Ali Jones, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Catherine McInnes. Catherine was formerly an arts journalist and commissioning editor. She's written for The Lady, The Times, The Telegraph and TLS. Her book Snow Widows came out in paperback this year and tells the story of Scott's race for the South Pole in 1912 from the point of view of the women left behind. Country Life called it breathless and mesmerising, and the spectator described it as an elegant, densely textured work like a tapestry. We'll come back to that quote about texture in just a moment, but I enjoyed it very much indeed. And of course, we're going to hear all about the women you wrote about. But um, when did this story first sort of appeal to you? You talked about when your husband went away, but the actual idea for writing a book about it, when did that come to you? Well, my husband is a teacher at Cheltenham College and the most famous alumni is Dr. Edward Wilson, who was one of the five. And nobody knew anything about his wife, Oriana. So the first book I wrote is called Women with the Iceberg Eyes, because people said that she had such blue eyes, they were like an iceberg. When I was researching her, nobody knew that after his death, she had become a collector for the Natural History Museum. So she travelled the world collecting different species. And some of those species are preserved in drawers in the Natural History Museum now. So the penguin's eggs, those famous penguin's eggs that were retrieved by Wilson and two others in a winter journey, the first winter journey ever done in Antarctica, those are in sort of centre stage at the Natural History Museum. But Oriana's collection have all been sort of tucked away in drawers so it was just really fun finding out. So that's how I got into it. And they are quite formidable women. You mentioned her steely gaze there. Let's go through them then. Who exactly were the Snow Widows? So the way that I kind of think of this is if you can imagine, or it's quite easy to search, 
the first selfies, very tragic pictures that were developed posthumously. And they're of the five men standing at the South Pole. The camera that they took was found in a tent with their dead bodies a year later. Then the film was brought back and developed. So they never saw these pictures. But if you think of those five, on the right is Edward Wilson. His wife was a scientist, Oriana. And next is Captain Scott. His wife was a sculptor. Her name's Kathleen. The next is Taff Evans. His wife was a singer called Lois. Next was Captain Oates. He wasn't married, but his mother was a lady of the manor. She kept servants in Guestingthorpe. She ran the whole kind of village. She had servants in London and she was organising his servants in India. And yet she was anti-suffrage. So she's a really fascinating lady. And then finally, on the far edge of that picture is a chap called Birdie Bowers. And his mother was a headmistress and she had worked in uh, Malaya in what was called then Further India. Pretty amazing ladies. (laughs) They are pretty amazing ladies. And that term snow widows, was that a term that was used at the time? It wasn't. But at this sort of time of imperialism, when the sun never set on the British Empire, people referred to grass widows, those were the women in India who took their small children up into the foothills to be cooler than the sort of government on the plains and in Calcutta. And then I just thought snow widows. Before we talk about them in detail, can you remind us of the situation with regards to women at that time, looking at the early part of the last century in terms of, as you say, suffrage and what they were allowed to do with regards to the Royal Geographical Society, which wasn't much, was it? Yes, you see, I love that quote. Lord Curzon, who had been Viceroy of India, was the president of the Royal Geographic Society. And he said, women have nothing to contribute to geography, but they're guineas. And so I have that quote in mind while I'm talking about the Snow Widows. You know, not only did they get decorated for their work during the war, but they discovered new species. They were just hugely influential and incredible. But yes, at that time, the fellows of the RGS were trying to restrict the entry to men only. They said, how can a woman be a fellow? You know, it seems completely obvious to them. And at that time, women couldn't vote. But interestingly enough, in New Zealand and Australia, they could. And so the two wives who accompanied their husbands out from England to New Zealand, which was the final place before sort of jumping off into the Antarctic, that's where the ship sailed from, were sort of asking the women in New Zealand and Australia, you know, what's it like having the vote? And Kathleen Scott was deputy head of the anti-suffrage society in Britain, which is incredible that it existed. And she went round the crowd at a race course in Melbourne and said, do you vote differently to your husband, to all these women? And they said they didn't. And she said, see, you don't need the vote. <laughs> Yeah, she was uh, quite a character, wasn't she? Not not much into the sisterhood. They were all quite quite different in class as well, very much difference in, as you say, views on, on suffrage and women. Did they get along? That's a very interesting question because it is really difficult researching the women in this story. The men kept diaries, journals, official letters. That's all easy and it's all at the Scott Polar Research Institute. But it's difficult to find out letters between the women because they didn't think those were important enough to archive. I have found a relationship between Emily Bowers and Caroline Oates, the two mothers of the two bachelors. They became friends, 
But what I find interesting is that this is rather shocking and sad. When the Scott Polar Research Institute was built, Caroline Oates was taken round it by Frank Debenham, who was one of the people who had survived and became the director of the Institute. And when she was leaving the building, she turned and pointed at a sculpture of Scott that Kathleen Scott had done, which is in the little circular apse above the main door. And she said, that man killed my son. So that was her opinion. But Emily Bowers, who she was friends with, had nothing but praise for Scott. She felt that Birdie, her son, couldn't have died in better company. So it's interesting for me that they could tolerate these wildly different reactions and yet be friends. But Kathleen Scott wasn't friends with anyone. She said before the tragedy happened, she said the next time my husband has an expedition, he should interview the wives as well as the men. Better still, have none. Talking about the expedition, then, we should say that it was a kind of age of exploration that broadly everybody was in support of this expedition, wasn't it? I mean, it was almost hoping that Scott would restore Britannia in some way. Absolutely, it was. It's interesting, isn't it, that the phrase is the taint of ignorance, that you couldn't call yourself a civilised society if there were still blank patches on the map. So that was their impetus. If they didn't have the resources to be able to erase this taint of ignorance and they didn't feel that they could respect themselves as a nation. And in terms of the women, I hadn't quite realised until I read your book just quite how long away from their husbands, and indeed the husbands were away from their wives, as they were. I mean, this was years without contact. It was years. So they left Cardiff in 1910, in June 1910. The news came back in February 1913. They died a year before that, but since you couldn't get into Antarctica and there were no mobile phones, they didn't find the bodies until it was the Antarctic summer, which is the opposite to the Northern Hemisphere, obviously, and they could trace them. They exchanged letters during that time, and obviously there was a massive delay between receiving and sending. So if you wanted to send a letter, you had to write it here and then it was shipped out to Australia, which took perhaps two months. And then the mail boat went in with supplies once a year when the sea ice around Antarctica froze. So you could only have communication once a year. So this was incredibly difficult because it led to tragic misunderstandings. So when Scott was actually dead in a tent, a message came back to New Zealand, which he'd written before he left on that journey to the South Pole saying, I am going to stay another year to complete my work. So that was the message that was put into the press. And Oriana, for example, sent a telegram to the newspaper in Cheltenham and the newspaper printed, our hero fit, strong and advancing. And actually he was dead in Antarctica because there was such a delay in communication. Marconi had offered them a transistor and a receiver, you know, the sort of very early radio systems he was inventing, but it was so big they couldn't fit it on the ship. If they had, they wouldn't have been able to take enough coal to stay alive. So, you know, they had to sort of make decisions about what they would and wouldn't take. But the thing that is quite interesting is that the wives wrote letters and post-dated them. And one of the most influential ones probably is Kathleen Scott's letter to Captain Scott, which she postdated to the eve of the expedition. So she said, open this just before you're about to set out. So they spend the whole sunless Antarctic winter in the hut. And then when they set out, Scott opens this letter. And in it, it says, I'm 
paraphrasing slightly, but this is almost a quote. If there is a risk for you or another man to take, you should take it because it wouldn't be your physical life that would profit me and Peter most. If there's anything you feel you should do at the cost of your life, do it. We shall only be glad. It's very romantic, you know, and love comes through strongly in this book. I know it's about all weather in the elements and politics and media, but there's a lot of love here, isn't there? Yeah. It's it's a kind of amazing love story in a way, isn't it? Longing. It's that kind of endless longing. Mm. Thank you, Catherine. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's go, well, let's go out into space now and travel to a distant moon with Alice Thompson. Alice is the former keyboard player with post-punk 80s band, The Wooden Tops, and joint winner with Graham Swift of the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Fiction for her first novel, Justine. Her second novel, Pandora's Box, was shortlisted for the Stackis Prize for Scottish Writer of the Year, and she's also won a Creative Scotland Award. Her latest novel, Chimera, came out last month. When I spoke to Alice, I asked her what it's about. Ostensibly, it's about Artemis, who is an investigator into dreams and how dreams can help with creating consciousness in artificial intelligence. So it's about her story of how she travels to a moon called Anaros with a group of astronauts, ostensibly to try and solve issues to do with climate change on Earth. But she's actually going to the moon for different reasons. So I was really looking at themes of consciousness and how we can create it in artificial intelligence, the role of the imagination and feelings in creating consciousness in artificial intelligence. And there's something in there about climate crisis as well. Very much so. It was... Under, it was um, the ostensible reason is to go to look for bacteria that can consume carbon dioxide on Earth in order to solve the problem of climate change. And it is a theme that becomes slightly more prevalent as the story continues because Anaris is a place of dreams and Anaris starts to turn into Earth or the climate of Earth. Initially, it's just a very snow-covered, icy planet. I suppose I was looking also at how certain people are looking at technologies to try and solve issues to do with climate change, whereas I think the issues really are about us changing our behaviour here on Earth. And what genre would you say this is, Alice? I'd definitely say I was looking at science fiction. I like to look at different genres in my books. I've written a detective story, a ghost story, a spy story, and I've been wanting to write a a science fiction novel for a while but never had the nerve because <laughs> I feel it's such a strong genre and involves much world building but the kind of science fiction writers I like are more interested in aspects of looking at social engineering or philosophical questions like J.G. Ballard or John Wyndham or Philip K. Dick. So I was more interested in the conceptual themes behind a lot of science fiction Presumably, you still had to do all that world building, though, as you say. I mean, how did you go about that? How did you decide? Because have to be rules, don't they? Very they much to be consistent. So. Yes, that's really the only rule, if you like, is that you can make up as much as you like, but it has to be consistent within the world you create. Yeah, it's interesting you, you, you talk about that because there's different kinds of world building 
my world in Chimera is, is very fantastical, based on dreams and holograms and doppelgangers. But I suppose I was very intent on creating a world of ice and snow, basically because I wanted to be there. <laughs> I was craving to be somewhere very cold. So I thought, well, I'll just create a world that's cold. And it addresses those issues of AI. AI, very topical and likely to stay topical, I would have thought. It's very zeitgeisty, my novel. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking now about, well, people very high up in the AI industries are warning about the dangers of artificial intelligence. And this book, in a way, is is a warning against it as well. I appreciate the are very many good things artificial intelligence can do, especially in, in the medical arena. But this book is also an exploration, really, of the dangers of artificial intelligence and how it can take control. And how much research did you have to do on this? Well, I was lucky enough to get a fellowship at Durham University at St John's College. So I was in the library there and I did quite a lot of research, actually, into artificial intelligence Really serendipity, the library had a sort of section on artificial intelligence, so I would just pick and choose, I'd make notes, it would come out in the writing of the book. I did do quite a lot of research, I mean, I do I do research for some, quite a few of my novels. You know, I won't use three quarters of it, but it acts as a backdrop, you know, that I know about, <laughs> even mm. if it's not actually stated in the novel. Yes, as lots of writers say that research is there, sort of underpinning, really. Yes, I, hopefully it gives some kind of credence to it, to what happens. I mean, I know my brother said you can't travel faster than the speed of light. <laughs> <laughs> but I really wanted my astronauts to travel faster than the speed of light, you know. So, I mean, there are aspects that take liberties. But, I mean, that's the whole point of science fiction, is that you can take liberties with reality. And did you find, because you've written in all those other genres, as you say, did you find there was something about science fiction, setting it in a fictional world that you'd built yourself that allowed you to comment on this world in a way that other genres haven't allowed? Coming back to that point about science fiction being a genre that can explore issues to do with consciousness and what makes us human, I just thought that was the ideal genre to look at these conceptual questions so it was a wonderful matching of what my concerns were at the time which were to do with artificial intelligence so therefore creating a world in which I could explore my attitude and my ambiguous attitude towards technological advancement and what it does for society and I suppose I feel there's not enough said about the the downsides to technology i feel as a, a species we, we've embraced technology rather unthinkingly and ali smith described you as angela carter crossed with the scottish diffidence of muriel spark i mean what a description those two writers angela carter and muriel spark great company to be in are you conscious of channeling their genres or some of them when you write that is such a good question it's interesting because in a way Chimera is about the creative process in a way, whether the, there's something about the creative process that is particularly human, from how intelligence might assimilate information. So I would say I was hugely influenced by the writers I've read. I particularly, luckily, happily love Angela Carter and Muriel Spark. I particularly like Muriel Spark. They've been 
influence is the quite quite the right word, but I've been affected by everything I've read, then that sense they have influenced me. But it's not a deliberate channeling. And Scottish diffidence there. Do you think there is a, a Scottish voice in writing? I don't know whether this is a huge generalisation, but I think there might be a sense of just feeling slightly on the outside of things. I um, think there is a love of the Gothic in Scottish literature, um, which I certainly inherit. And someone pointed out that Chimera did have unconscious references to Frankenstein. And I've always loved the Gothic. So I think that would be another way into looking at s- some Scottish literature. What's next for you then, Alice? Are you are you staying with this genre or are you moving genre again? I think I'll probably move genre again. Chimera does end on a bit of a cliffhanger, so it's possible that I will write a follow-up, but it's equally possible that I will I will look at a different genre, perhaps a psychological thriller, um, which I feel I haven't attempted yet. And Chimera by Alice Thompson is published by Salt. We're talking on Bookmark today to Catherine McInnes about her book, Snow Widows, the women left behind during Scott's Antarctic expedition. Catherine, I read out that quote earlier about the texture like a tapestry, and you do weave between the women at home and the men in the South Pole, and then you move around in time as well from the present to the past. It's an interesting structure. Uh, A lot of it is in the present tense. How did you come to that decision to write it that way? The decision to write it in the present tense was because I met Wayland Kennett, who was Kathleen Scott's second son. She was the only one who remarried. And she lived in a house that was J.M. Barry's old house. So the person who wrote Peter Pan. So when I went to meet Wayland Kennett, he took me up into the nursery where Peter Pan flew out of the window. (laughs) It was this feeling of time standing still. I said to him, could you explain what it was like when your mother lived here? He was an elderly man with one of those amazing minds that can remember the past in amazing detail. And he said, well, she is standing there and here is her sculpture table in front. This is the maquette she's working on at the moment. There's a lamp here, flowers here, the curtains half closed. And it was happening in front of his eyes. And I just thought, that's what I want to try and do. I want to try and make this story happen in the present for people. So we're not going to be wise in retrospect and say, oh, they should have not taken five men, they should have taken four. You know, be right in there, feeling the temperature and feeling the sort of near starvation and then make the decisions with a mind that is in that position. But yes, there is a bit of weaving because what I'm trying to do is find an echo. It's actually based in this piece of Algars. So when, for example, Captain Oates decided that he wanted out and he was going to write a cheque for £200 to cover his expenses, almost the moment he was writing that cheque in Antarctica, his mother was also writing a cheque to the British Antarctic Expedition because she'd heard that there weren't sufficient funds to be able to take the mail boat out and she wanted to make sure that it got there. And as you say, writing in the present tense, keeping it real. But of course, we do know how this story ends, one of the most uh, famous stories in our history. How was it writing it knowing that ending? Did you see, were there poignancies along the way? Because you knew how it ended, if you know what I mean. Yes, I hope that you can feel it through the text. But there are some really extraordinary things. If you read those letters, the letters they wrote 
well, Scott wrote one to my wife, then crossed it out, widow. Those letters are incredible because you can sort of see the situation unfolding. So, for example, when Scott writes to Oriana about Edward Wilson, who is dying beside him, the first half of the letter, he's alive. And then it says he died as he lived. So obviously in that time that he's been writing the letter, he's died and nobody's really read them that closely before. It's the most extraordinary thing because they're very famous texts. But if you actually read them as they were written, it's a different experience. And how did it feel for you sort of touching those letters, seeing those letters, touching those things that have been so close to the people that you're writing about? Quite amazing and a huge privilege and very interesting because when you read Kathleen Scott's diaries... So she didn't find out that her husband had died until weeks after the rest of the world because she was on a boat going from California out to New Zealand and they couldn't contact her. But when she does find out, her first reaction in her diary is, well, I expected that. And then you can see her writing deteriorate. And although she's trying to be really brave and say, if he was really brave, how dare I possibly wail? Actually, it looks as if she's dictating to a child when you look at her script or that she's just changed her pen into her left hand. I mean, she can barely write. And so that's very interesting, a kind of texture to it that we wouldn't get through an email, for example. Well, let's see your second choice of music now, which is Tall Trees in Georgia by Eva Cassidy. Why this one? When the men came back from New Zealand, the survivors, they could smell the land before they could see it. They call this petrichor, the name for the smell of earth. So they had a contract with the central news agency that they would give them 24 hours ahead of the news. The Terra Nova, the ship that brought the survivors back with the news of the tragedy, came into Omaru in New Zealand. Three men got out into a rowing boat and they rowed silently ashore. And then one of the men rowed back and then the Terra Nova hid over the horizon. And they sent the first telegram to London. And then they said to the telegram officer at Omaru, would you mind if we locked you in your room for the rest of the day? (laughs) So they did that. And then they went to the station. And instead of waiting in the station where they felt they'd be too conspicuous, they waited on the grass beside the track. And then when the train started going to Christchurch, which is where they were aiming for, to the expedition agent in New Zealand, they jumped on the train. And then when people asked them who they were, they said, we can't tell you because they knew they had this 24 hours with this news agency. The contract had to be honoured because the expedition was in debt and it was worth a lot of money. You can imagine for these men who haven't seen a tree from 1910 to 1913, it was just unbelievable looking out of the window of the train and seeing all this green and trees. So that's partly what it is, this song. Tall trees in Georgia Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876 Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Catherine McInnes about her book, Snow Widows, The Women Left Behind During Scott's Antarctic Expedition. Catherine, you were talking there before the music about the delay in news, about having to lock 
a telegram operator in a room to make sure he didn't break the story. I mean, so different now. Obviously, that wouldn't be allowed to happen, the gaps between communication. Writing it from our world, writing about their world from our world, how difficult was that? How, because there were so many, not just practical things, but views, political views, moral views that were different then. Yes, very different. And I was very conscious of that. So I have a bit of a disclaimer in the sort of prologue. Yes, the class system was very, very circumscribed at that point. And that possibly is exemplified best by the distribution of the Mansion House Fund. So when the news eventually came back, the public outpouring of grief and then money to the fund for the widows was absolutely enormous. And then the people at the RGS had to work out how it was distributed. And so the actual amount was about £75,000 then, which is millions now. The Scots, Kathleen and Peter Scott, the Scots were given 12000 of that money. But Lois, who had three children, who was the petty officer's wife, so the working class wife, was only given 1250 And she was told that she had to present her children to prove that they were alive every year that she claimed her allowance, just in case somebody like that would pretend that one of them was still alive and claim. It's just unbelievable, the story. So I am looking at it with a hundred years perspective. But at the time, for example, right at the end of the book, Lois is the only wife alive when the Scott of the Antarctic film is premiered, a royal premiere. And one of the actors came up to her and said, what was Scott like? And she said, I never met him. So even though her husband had been to the Antarctic with him twice and had served under him in the Royal Navy, she'd never presumed to ask to meet Captain Scott and he'd never asked to meet her. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. And the, the snobbery is absolutely breathtaking. And these class distinction did feed into the views of what might have happened to the men on the pole and with the lower classes, as it were, being almost blamed. Yes, this is the real tragedy, possibly, isn't it? That Taff Evans was the first person to die when they left the pole. And that was probably because he'd cut his hand, and this is pre-antibiotics, and he'd probably gone septic and he'd his whole system was breaking down. Also, he'd fallen into a crevasse and hit his head on a blue ice, and that possibly had caused a head injury. And because they were suffering from sort of scurvy and starvation, their kind of internal organs weren't operating properly. So he became very confused. And in Scott's diary, he said, you know, Taff is becoming a real nuisance. And Scott felt that Taff was holding them back and perhaps the other four would die. So eventually, when Scott's diary was found, when their frozen bodies were found, That diary came back and it seemed to blame Taff and it said he lost his reason. And that was translated as went mad. And also people speculated that because he couldn't reach into the classical library of his mind, perhaps he had become fatally bored and perhaps he wasn't as good a loser as the other four who were officer class and had sort of learnt how to behave, I don't know, on the playing fields of Eton. And so... Lois's family were badly bullied. There's no other way of um, saying it. And when they did, for example, the cigarette cards of the men who had died, they had a sledge with four men pulling it, not five. And they had a separate card for all the other men, but not for Taff. The good thing is that Caroline Oates, who is enormously rich, 
I don't know whether she gave money to Lois, but she definitely commissioned an altar cloth for Guestingthorpe Hall Church. So I think people were trying to give her extra money, but the government and the Mansion House Fund and the RGS weren't. They didn't even know her name. They just called her the petty officer's wife. Just heartbreaking. When you were writing uh, these different women, these five different women, because you do go into their lives and we, we meet their families and their circumstances, did it feel different when you were in the headspace of each one of them? Did you have a favourite? I did have a favourite and I tried not to make it obvious. Then the editor said, can we just write the whole book about Emily Bowers? <laughs> <laughs> she was the most unbelievably resourceful woman. She had actually started life in a tailor's shop. Her father was a tailor. Then she had aced the Queen's certificate, which was the equivalent of A-levels. Then she went to Cheltenham Teacher Training College, went to a school, was made headmistress within two years. You know, she was just ludicrously capable and intelligent. Yes, she is probably my favourite. Thank you, Catherine. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's hear from Sean Ashton now. Sean is a former editor of Map Magazine and writes for Art Review. His novel, The Way to Work, came out in April. And Sean, tell me what it's about. It concerns the fortunes of an ordinary rail commuter who boards his morning train, only to find it redirected to something that feels very much like purgatory. So the boundary between the familiar world of his everyday commute and the very strange world that he enters is somewhat indeterminate. But he first realises that something is wrong when he looks out the window on unfamiliar terrain and then he realises that things are so much more wrong when he looks round and realises that everybody is on the wrong train, not just him. That is to say, he, he recognises everyone from his daily commute but he's wondering why everyone else is not anxious about being on the wrong train. And so what happens next is that he decides to make his way down the train in search of the guard, but of course he can't find him. When he asks the other passengers if they've seen the guard, they become strangely anxious, as though to ask such a question is, is, is akin to a kind of blasphemy. And it gradually dawns on him that the guard has the same status as, as God, and that the train represents the entire cosmos in which the passengers now live. So effectively, the train, the daily 808 service, becomes their afterlife. That's it in a nutshell. And is this based on a particularly hellish commute that you had? Not that suggesting you ended oh, up in purgatory, but... Un undoubtedly. I'm a, a regular weekly commuter to Leeds, and probably one time out of three, uh, something goes wrong. Sometimes that's not so unpleasant, actually. If the thing you have to do that day isn't so stressful and then you spend an extra two hours on the train just working on your own stuff, you know, like <laughs> fiction writing. So in some ways, what could be more pleasant than being in this sort of nether region? Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's pleasant. So I, I extended that idea and I thought to myself, well, what if he never arrived? What would life be like if the train was indeed the entire world that you had at your disposal? Did you write any of it on the train? No, I didn't actually. I very rarely write on the train. I, I do crosswords and <laughs> things like that and listen to old John Peel sessions that I've illegally downloaded from the <laughs> internet. Because there is something about, as you say, that space, it's a liminal space, isn't it, yes. between two places that is unique. Yes. Liminality has is, is always been one of my, my key interests as a writer. There's this idea that when you're in a zone that is between the place that you've come from and the place that you're trying to get to, 
you can have certain thoughts and certain ambitions that you wouldn't have when you reach your destination. It's as though it loosens something in the psyche. I suppose just to contradict what I just said, I did conceive quite a lot of the book while I was on the train en route to my, my normal everyday job. But I probably did so subconsciously, I think. It probably came about as a result of years of um, subconsciously speculating what it would be like if you had to spend days or weeks on public transport. And I suppose train journeys as well have become quite symbolic, haven't they, of making a journey, but particularly by train, it seems to capture our imagination, has become uh, resonant. Yeah, it's a very pertinent question, I think. But I sometimes think that we overlook that because train journeys take a lot less time now. In the 19th century, to undertake a train journey would have been, you know, to go from London, say, from, from Leeds, it would have been like a whole day. To travel further than that, you know, to travel by boat anyway, it would have been considered a not only a, a lengthy undertaking, but a dangerous one as well. And so these journeys did become, uh, in some cases, rites of passage, where the character of the, the passenger was changed. I'm interested in whether that can remain the case even today when our journeys are much shorter. You know, I, I do think that commuting does change our character. It's a test of character as well. To sit in a train carriage and not to communicate with most people on a daily basis six or seven days a week for some people is a very strange thing to do and it has a toll on, on, on one's character, I think. And you're used to writing poetry. Uh, that might be yes. where most people know you from. Writing this, uh, prose, is it a different headspace for you, a different learning curve? The thing is with a with a long form fiction is, is that it becomes much more speculative. You're much less anxious about trying to control the thing and to keep it down to a certain amount of words, which is obviously the business of poetry. That said, in the many edits that one does to a novel, you're always looking to lose extraneous information. So obviously the skill of a poet does come into the equation there. I certainly did enjoy the last book of poetry that I wrote, which was a book called Sampler, it presented itself as an excerpt of pieces taken from a fictional encyclopedia that I'd invented. So I chose different entries from this imaginary encyclopedia and put them into categories for this book. That, I suppose, was as much a work of fiction as it was a poetry collection. So that's my form, really, as a writer. I tend to write books that fall in between categories. This is the first book that I've written that does fall into the conventional category of, of novel, I think. You know, it has a plot, it has characters, there is development and there is a resolution of, of sorts. Although it is about being between two places. Yeah, yeah. one might ask, you know, how, how can there be a, a resolution within these liminal zones and uh, without sort of wanting to spoil the plot for the reader. The end of it is sort of, it recalls perhaps the ending of The Wizard of Oz, in a way, in that the authority figures on the train, the guard and the driver, are revealed to be quite underwhelming and by no means as controlling as the narrator first thought. And what about structure? Because obviously writing long-form prose, you're, you're concerning about an arc, a narrative arc. Hmm. I'm not suggesting you don't have that in poetry, but this is sustaining it over a longer period of time. As a kind of tentative first-time novelist. Well, this is my second novel, actually, but the first one was quite an experimental affair. I decided to make things easier for myself structurally by setting it on a train of apparently infinite length. It's also a train that 
when the narrator travels forward, he can't go back either because the doors closed behind him, sealed shut. So the train is effectively sentient, it's like a supernatural entity. Of course, that means that he can't go back to correct any of his errors or attenuate any of his past interactions. So consequently, the novel has a relentlessly forwards momentum. He is undertaking this journey within a journey. He doesn't know where the train is going, but it's going somewhere, it's going forward. Also, structurally, quite early on in the novel, I realised that there were echoes of the river in Conrad's Heart of Darkness, that I'd effectively substituted a train for his river that leads into the African interior. And that's one of my favourite novels, Heart of Darkness. What interests me about it was the extent to which a man, Kurtz, can be identified with a topography, with a river, and that to meet the man is to meet the river. To meet the river is to meet the man. They're both interchangeable things. And, of course, this is what happens in my novel. The, the narrator becomes synonymous with the train. His character becomes integrated with it and inseparable from it. He finds peace in that integration. And The Way to Work by Sean Ashton is published by Salt. We've been speaking on Bookmark today to Catherine McKennis about her book Snow Widows, which is published by Harper Collins. Catherine, what can we learn for today, if anything, from the Snow Widows? Resilience. Also, the amazing influence you can make, even people who don't have a big ego or feel they need to make a print on the world that other people recognise, there can still be a huge influence sort of the power behind the throne, which Scott acknowledged that, you know, women were and and he acknowledged that they had an enormous influence. And do you think the reporting of events has changed? I mean, I'd like to think it has, that we don't uh, judge things by class as much. I'm trying to think of something similar where it might have been that, that somebody's been written out of history. That's kind of my mission <laughs> <laughs> that you've uh, you've touched on. There are so many women who have been written out of history and they're all so fascinating. And I always find the story behind the story much more interesting. And there are many more to write. I'm writing one at the moment, which is about a woman who had a huge influence without being obvious about it. And she is utterly invisible. Nobody knows her. In fact, I spoke to her son in the same way that I spoke to Wayland Kennett and her son didn't even know where she was buried. I thought... My goodness, how invisible can this person be? She died in 1942. So that was when the Second World War was raging. So he was away from home, but he never knew. So these women, are I can't overstate how invisible they are. In a recent issue of the Geographical, which is the RGS journal, it said that one of the people who had died with Scott's wife was a member, and it was Mrs. Oates. But Oates was never married. How can that still be so wrong when he is so famous? Isn't it amazing? Amazing. Uh, well, when we're talking over 100 years ago now, aren't we? There's been plenty of time to put that right. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and a question that we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I am reading, this may be a bit of a giveaway to what I'm writing, I'm reading The Wildest Dream, George Mallory, The Biography of an Everest Hero, and it's by Peter and Lenny Gilman, and it is a beautifully written book. Peter and Lenny have been enormously supportive of my project and I would love to be able to write this well. <laughs> you know, they're incredible. 
That sounds great. I look forward to that. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show, well, our next show actually is the last ever episode of Bookmark. So it's going to be a retrospective. I'll be looking at some of the interviews, some of my favourite interviews from the last 10 years or so. But we'll sign out now, Catherine, with your last choice of music, which is Eternity by Emily Hall. Why this one? This one I heard played actually on Radio 3 in 2020 and it just stopped me in my tracks. I think it's incredible. The way that I hear it is it has this amazing kind of overlapping time and it feels like the expression that Francis Spufford uses, sympathetic equivalence. So even though the women in the Northern Hemisphere and the men in the Southern Hemisphere couldn't speak to each other, you can feel that they are sort of on the same page. If you listen to the words, it says no sign of her in quest. It's found in eternity. It's all the concepts that I have behind this book in one piece of music. It's found we see eternity. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.